0: Sometimes the idea that you have is so far ahead of where the public is, you can't get them there quick enough and they just can't see it yet. But as life evolves and time goes by a little at a time, we never believed in cell phones, then internet, then it's video through the phone. So if you would have said to somebody in 1970 that you would be talking on a cell phone and the person on the other side should see you while everyone else is sending out postcards to each other in 14 days, they'd put you in the nuthouse though the idea is great the issue is is it's too early electric cars driverless cars you think of all these things and if you'd done that many many years ago they probably would have thought you were a witch and burned you at the stake so it's something i always look at and say well does the idea have merit so i had an idea for an instructional video in 1977 and everybody thought I i was nuts i said no i think that could work and nobody would get behind it. I spent years trying to get some foothold. And then I thought, gee, how am I going to get it to the market? So I realized that you have to think about how you're going to take something to the market first, not after you always spent all your time, money, and effort to build something because you don't know if it's going to sell.
1: Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the disruptors, influencers, innovators, and entrepreneurs who are shaping the future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston. And today, my guest is Dean Rainmouth. Also known as the Dean of Golf. Dean is an instructor, coach, innovator, writer, media personality, and a true golf entrepreneur. Dean, thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Okay, Dean, I've been following you for a while here, and I, I, I really consider you as one of the innovators in golf entrepreneurship, so really looking forward to hearing your stories of your journey over the last couple of decades here. So, Dean, I spent some time with you at the PGA Show where you shared some amazing stories about that entrepreneurial journey, along with your latest teaching innovation that you're going to share with us later on, but I got to say, after speaking with you, I think my biggest challenge today will be keeping this conversation to under an hour because you have so many engaging stories to tell from your 40 years in the golf industry. I'll work hard not to overdo you. There we go. Okay, good stuff. So, so Dean, hey, let's start things off here by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the golf industry more than four decades ago.
0: Well, when I first started, I was as a really young kid. I used to chip in my house. And I used to putt on a carpet between some books because I lived in Chicago. So, for most of the year, it was the weather was lousy. So, I uh, ultimately moved out to San Diego and. I played first. I played in about 18 different countries. And when I ended up retiring from playing, which was in the late 70s, there was a golf company here. It was actually a a university. It was called Golf Academies of America. And I started with a lady doing some golf lessons with hypnosis and the mental side of the game. She made a brochure and she said, well, you know, this is kind of interesting because we have like Cesar Sanudo and a bunch of these guys come in and they want to work on the mental side of their game. And she said, we might be able to synergize that. So you know, how do we do that? So we made a brochure. She fronted the money for the brochure. And she said, well, where would we find students? You'll do the golf side. I'll do the mental, emotional side and the self-hypnosis. So it was the company's name was called Hypnos Morpheus. This is way back, you know, and people are like, Hypnos Morpheus? What kind of a name is that? Right. Well, they used to do these motivational seminars. So we'd get all these brochures and she says, Well, where are you going to market them? I said, Well, that's easy. I'll go out to the Buick Open and every person in that parking lot's a golfer. We'll just put them on the cars. So I get a bunch of friends and we go out there and start plastering around the cars in the parking lot. And they're all over the place. And this guy drives up in a car saying, hey, what are you doing? You can't do that. You don't have a permit to do that. I'm thinking a permit to put pieces of paper on a windshield of a car. This doesn't make sense. So he wants me to then take them all off the windshield. I took off a few and then I left. And the first day we had 20 people show up for the free seminar. And she says to me, look, I don't know if this is going to go that well because it's no deposits. She said, but, you know, go in and talk to them and we'll see who signs up. So we came out and she said, I can't believe this. She said, 19 of the 20 signed up for these classes. I said, what happened to the other guy? I was worried about the guy that didn't sign up. So I ended up literally getting all 20 people in that first one to start the thing. So that's kind of how I started. Then I went to the San Diego Golf Academy And we had regular classes. Now they're called, there's PRGR, there's universities that have these educational programs for students that want to get into the golf industry, whether it's general manager position or sales. That was the beginning of the San Diego Golf Academy, which is now Golf Academies of America, which is pretty much throughout the United States. And I started a class back then because I was coaching here. And I had a a young student named Nancy Harrison, who in one summer, she won 11 junior tournaments. So I was both teaching golf and working at the Golf Academy. And at the Academy, I started a program for what we call the methods of teaching class, where I would teach teachers how to teach. And we would go to, we call them the geriatric group because they came over on a Tuesday. And this was like their recreational time. They just wanted to get out, hit some golf balls and see if they could get their game better. But they're elderly and they had a good time. And these students, we would talk in the class and then they would actually work with the students and I would monitor them while they were giving a lesson. And what I found out was two things. There's one method of teaching somebody when you're teaching a student how to play. There's another when you're teaching, like if I was teaching you how to teach someone else. And that system in golf was never instituted to that level before. And still, most of the training that people have now is they go to seminars and you listen, so you become educated. But the process by which you see a student, you read what it is that they're doing, you start to understand how they think and feel and transmit information between their brain and their body. That connection is the hardest one to understand. So you learn an awful lot when you're teaching someone else how to teach another person.
1: Right, I just want to go back here a bit. I I just love that early story of you with the guerrilla marketing and just getting out there and just (laughs) marketing right on windshields. Yeah, this is pre internet days we're talking here, whereas now, of course, you can have focused, pinpointed marketing for different segments. I just love your entrepreneurial grit there of just getting out there and just making it happen.
0: Well, and and that's the thing, you know, it it takes that even now. You know, they use all the analytics and all that stuff, it's like they'll have analytics on everything. Well, I watch, I'm gonna watch a Super Bowl with a lot of people this weekend, but that doesn't mean that I'm a buyer of football equipment. It just means I'm a casual viewer. You have to dumb down in between that. But what I knew at that time is there isn't a single person in these parking lots that isn't passionate about golf. Now, what I didn't know is how many of them really want to play better, but the odds are that most people who love the game are all trying to figure out how to play a little better. Some are trying to play at all, and others are trying to find a little piece that they need, and if they get that, then they play to the level that they'd like to play to. So that was a very defined market, and it was easy
1: to spot. Right. What did you say? 19 out of 20 there before you went after the last guy there. That's 95% success rate as far as customer validation. Right. Nowadays, any industry will actually take that. And obviously that gave you the insight there that there was something really there. Right. And you then to take it in San Diego, then scale that up there by becoming the teacher of teachers or the coach of coaches to really scale that up as the startup mentality these days of wanting to scale up real fast that you actually had the mechanism in place to do that. So I have to ask you here, Dean, as we're kind of sticking with the early years here, have you always had the this entrepreneurial DNA? Has this always been part of you, even as a kid? Or is this something that kind of emerged as a young adult?
0: No, I think it was always in me. I I never saw myself as a follower of anything. My father actually came to our house one time when he first saw it. And he asked me, he said, did you ever imagine you'd live in a place like this? And I said, yeah, always. And he was shocked. He said, always? I said, yeah, from the time I was eight years old. I always had it. It was just something that a friend of mine years ago said, you're never going to work for a company. I said, why do you say that? He says, you're not cut out that way.
1: <laughs> not, I've been told not maybe not so nice that uh, I'm pretty much unemployable. So So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love the risk, as do I. You and I are cut from the same cloth as far as that entrepreneurial DNA. But seeing what you do here, there is risk, but also you're not just some reckless renegade. You really see where opportunities are and build that up incrementally and really take some risks. But you also seem to be getting that constant feedback to see what's working and what's not.
0: Right. Well, if you look at the industry, you know, the industry is always trying to figure out how do you grow the base or grow the interest in the game or maintain the interest just like any business, right? You're going to have customers that stay and then you're going to try to create new customer bases. So in that... In order to create a new customer base, you have to offer something else, not the same thing. And that's really where that comes from. Right. I see things more in the future. Like I saw that the mental side of the game was going to be really important. And so when I was going through the Morpheus, I also had a sponsor and he said, I want you to go to a success motivation seminar as part of my relationship with you as a being your sponsor. I want you to go there and I'll pay for it. So I went to one. The gentleman, his name was actually Sanford I. Berman, but he was Dr. Michael Dean was his stage name, and he was a hypnotist, and he did success motivation seminars, and at the same time, he did hypnosis on a stage show where he put people to sleep and have them do funny things and all that in the evenings, right? So I go there. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden Gene Littler walks in. I know Gene from the club because I was a member at La Jolla Country Club. And I said, Gene, I know why I'm here because I'm trying to figure out how to become a good player. And you're already a good player. So why are you here? He said, you know, as you know, I have cancer and I'm around all these people that don't think you can beat cancer. And I need to be around people that believe that there's a way to beat it. So he was himself, as a very positive and great player, was looking for ways to
1: be around a positive energy and a view of the future and where it could go. Interesting. So it sounds like you've also surrounded yourself with energetic, positive, interesting, and dynamic people too to help propel you forward here. And on that, as an entrepreneur, you need to surround yourself with people that can help move you forward. You mentioned Gene there. Is there anyone else in your life, early in your career, that has helped you along the way to shape your entrepreneurial journey here, Dean? Bob Tosky was probably my biggest mentor and one of my
0: greatest friends in, in my golf career. I just saw him at the PGA show. I was a young golfer looking for help, and I read some stuff in Golf Digest magazine when I was young. He had a a sense of the game and how to explain the unexplainable, which is sometimes when you stand over a shot, you just know it's going to be good. Other times when you stand over it, you just know you're going to miss it. And I didn't understand where all that came from, and I wanted to be around someone who really knew. So I went to Toski and called him and I went down, took a lesson from him. I was thinking I was going to be there for an hour or two because I said, look, I only have 200 and some dollars. And when that's up, let me know. He said, don't worry about the money. Well, when you don't have money, that's what you worry about. So he's there working with me. I ended up spending three days there. He put me up in a hotel room. He said, don't worry about it.
1: Three days later, you know, I'm flying back home with the greatest experience of my life. And we've been friends ever since. Sounds like an inspirational man there that's really had an impact on your life and your career there. So, hey, I wanted to ask you this. As an entrepreneur, I, you've you've done so many things and, and are always curious and looking for And We're going to talk about it in a few minutes here with Swing Coach and, and dig into that a little bit. But like myself as an entrepreneur, not everything works out in some things, if you even want to call them failures, or some people nicely like to put them as learning opportunities. Could you share a story with us of something you got involved with perhaps didn't work out as well as you were hoping, but you actually learned a lot of things that helped you on the next endeavor that you embarked upon?
0: Well, I had, as my brother would say, I had more business cards, business names. I had one called American Golf Seminars, which now they're doing seminars, right? Sometimes the idea that you have is so far ahead of where the public is, you can't get them there quick enough and they just can't see it yet. But as life evolves and time goes by a little at a time, we never believed in cell phones, then internet. Then it's video through the phone. So if you would have said to somebody in nineteen seventy that you would be talking on a cell phone and the person on the other kite should see you while everyone else is sending out postcards to each other in fourteen days, they'd put you in the nut house, right? So Even though the idea is great, the issue is is it's too early. Electric cars, driverless cars, you think of all these things, and if you'd done that many, many years ago, they probably would have thought you were a witch and burned you at the stake. So it's something I always look at and say, well, does the idea have merit? So I had an idea for an instructional video in 1977, and everybody thought I I was nuts. I said, no, I think that could work, and nobody would get behind it. I spent years trying to get some foothold. I finally got a sponsor at American Airlines and Anheuser-Busch, and I packaged it together. I I got some airline tickets. I traded that off with some producers so that by the time I finished the video, I'd already had it paid for. And then I thought, gee, how am I going to get it to the market? So I realized that you have to think about how you're going to take something to the market first. Not after you always spent all your time, money, and effort to build something because you don't know if it's gonna sell. So that's where you know that comes from. I took it to one guy and he was his name was Rich Card of Master Grip. And Rich is at the time was one of the biggest seller of golf instruction videos because by the time I got mine out, they said the market was flooded. So now I went from it's a bad idea to, well, everyone's doing one. Why would we take you on? Because you got Nicholas and Palmer and Gary Player and all these big names. And they're all selling their videos, so it's too late now. So you're either too early or too late. And all I could do is, every time I had one of those conversations, say, sorry, you're an idiot, next, and move on. And I kept doing that, and ultimately, Rich didn't take it on, but another guy did, it was D. Swing Meyer, He took it on and we got a 6% response rate. We sold those for a while. He gave me exclusivity. Then he went back to Rich and I said, listen, here's my response rate. He said, well, if that's correct, we'll make a lot of money. I said, yeah, because now I want half because I proved it out. And so we sold over a million copies.
1: Wow. I didn't realize the number was that high. I just love that. It's interesting. The last couple of years, just between accelerators And startup camps and so many tools and resources and groups out there for young entrepreneurs, you didn't have that back in the day and you had to figure that out yourself. And it sounds like you nailed that. You actually found the market first, kind of started small, found the right fit and then scaled the thing up rather than, and I teach this all the time when I mentor startups and young entrepreneurs, the last thing you want to do is create a product on budget on time that nobody wants. And it sounds like you figured that out.
0: Exactly. I started traveling. I did the very first world teaching summit. I was a keynote speaker over in Malaga, Spain. I came back from that and I started doing other ones. But I had heard about this thing coming out called the Golf Channel. By that time, I had written for Golf Magazine, which was my first printed material, which was take a swing at tension. And that was the article name. And then from that, I realized that because I was good locally, everybody knew me here in San Diego. But I taught Nancy Harrison. Then I taught the Malbergs. One qualified for the Open twice. The other was the Section Player of the Year. So I had good local branding and positioning and success. But if I wanted to do what I wanted to do, I had to do it on a much bigger scale. Well, years earlier, I'd been in an office building one time and a lady walks by and she goes, why aren't you in commercials? And I looked at her, kind of flip it. And I said, no one's asked me yet. And what else am I going to say? So she comes back a little while later and she says, no, I'm serious. That's my agency. If you're interested, my name's Mary Crosby. Come in and see me. She was my agent for the 25 years I was in the Screen Actors Guild. And it all happened sitting on a bench. So I had experience in front of the camera, and what I wanted to find out was how do I get to a bigger, broader audience? Because if I'm only getting, say I'm getting 100 people in San Diego, well, if I can reach everyone on the planet, I can multiply that 100 times over, right? So I'd heard about this thing at the Golf Channel, and I was giving a guy a lesson named Gary Davis. And Gary, I said, you know, I've got to find somebody who knows somebody with the Golf Channel. And he goes, Why? I said, because I can do TV. I'm a member of the Screen Actors Guild. I've got a presence. I know what I'm doing on TV. I could do that. And that's going to be where it's going. He said, well, I know Joe Gibbs. He said, I'll give you his number. Give him a call. So I called Joe Gibbs. Joe says, yeah, Dean, you know, Gary told me about you. He said, call Gary Stevenson down at the Golf Channel and set
1: it up. And Joe's one of the investors with Golf Channel, correct? Yeah, he and Arnold
0: were friends and they struck it up. And then IMG was another one of the original investor groups. So I called Gary and Gary said, yeah, look, come on down, do two shows for us. So I go down. I said, I'll do two shows for nothing. If you like what I do, you have to hire me. They said, okay, so I have no idea that it's already closed. They've already got three guys. They had Ledbetter, Pels, and Jim McLean were already signed on. But I didn't have any idea. So I go down there, do the two shows, and I told them I wanted two students. I didn't want to know who they were. I just wanted to see them. I needed 15 minutes to watch them, and then we'd shoot the shows. So I'm there with Bob Swanson, who was my producer for many, many, many years and still a good friend. And we went out there, and they had Scott Van Pelt, who no one knew at the time and another guy and myself and I said I need two cameras put one here one here and this is what I'm going to do with Scott and this is what I'm going to do with somebody else so I teasingly tell Scott I made his career at this point because he became famous for being my student on the golf channel <laughs> so anyway we did the two shows we did the first show it took us about an hour and a half we did the second show it took us like an hour and 15 minutes arnold came up in his cart we said hello and they hired me and that was the beginning then I started to reach a broader audience and we achieved that launched Date was actually January 17th, 1995. We launched the golf channel at the PGA show in Las Vegas and we did the opening show. They never gave us a shot. They thought we were going to be on the
1: air for about a month. Yeah, I I love that that story, your Golf Channel story there. It, it just encapsulates the entrepreneurial spirit. You did, you just got after it. You just found a way to make that happen. And once you cracked the door open, you bashed it down there. So I love that story, Dean. So thanks for sharing that with us. So Dean, I, I know that you were Phil Mickelson's coach for 13 years, and you also helped turn PGA Tour Pro Ricky Barnes' career around. So obviously, you have the credentials to make that your full-time work, but you don't. You caught that entrepreneurial bug along the way, and you don't can't help but constantly innovate and reinvent yourself. So, with that, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what you're working on now. And you showed me this at the PGA show. Can you tell us a bit about Swing Coach?
0: Yeah, it's a very, very interesting project. A gentleman named Bill Parks is the inventor. Bill had, through a mutual friend, Michael Max, had sent it to me to take a look at it. And when I first looked at it, I said, I get a lot of this stuff. I mean, I get all kinds. And if you go to the PGA show, you know all the stuff that's being sold there. And so you look at it and say, yeah, but will it work? If it doesn't work, I'm not interested in it. And I don't use training aids much at all in my whole career. And I didn't endorse them either. Not to say that they're not valid, it's just. I never got a hold of them that way. I was more involved with the student directly. And so I saw this and I said, well, you know, this might have some merit. Let's take a look. And it's based on how you th- would throw a golf ball underhanded, like you know, Toski would say, or people would talk about, you know, throwing the release a little bit. Or There's varying ways to describe that. I try not to you know, get too caught up in words. But they sent it to me and I tried it and I said, there's something here, but it doesn't work. And so I took a pass. And about a year later, Chris Chamberlain, the president of Nupro, the company that has the product in the marketplace, Chris called me and said, Bill mentioned that you'd taken a look at it and you thought there was something there, but it wasn't ready yet. Would you be willing to take another look at it? And I said, yeah, sure. So they sent it to me and I tested it out and it was a better, but it still wasn't working the way it had to work for me to do something. I said, well, let me see if I can figure out what's going wrong with why it's not working. It should work, but it's not. So I took it up. There was a guy named Rodney Jerkins, who's a very famous producer of music in L.A., and his son was an avid golfer. So I took it up, and there was a gentleman there that introduced me, and Rodney's son picked up the club and actually hit it, and it broke the prototype cradle, which holds the golf ball. So I couldn't use it at the time I came home and I thought, well, wait a minute, let me break it some more and see if I can figure this out. So I broke it and I could turn this holder in the it all the way around, but I taped it with gaff tape in the morning. I changed things and I set it up a different way. I called Bill and I said, why did you set this up on the shaft plane line instead of the swing plane line? He says, well, everybody talks about the shaft plane line. I said, well, that's why it's going dead left. So then we changed that and came up with the name swing coach because when I first went on tour, we were PGA tour instructors and Now we're called Swing Coaches. So we came up with the name, we reserved the name, we came and rebuilt the whole product. And basically what it does is it's a product that will tell you what you're doing when you're swinging it. Most people's practice swings are better than their ball swing. And the reason is because they tend to focus on hitting the ball versus swinging. If you look at little kids, when you have them hit a plastic wiffle ball, their batting swing is better than when you throw a little hard ball. You toss it underhanded. So I look at that and say, well, if you could train your practice swing to become your actual swing, you're already ahead of the game. Most people's swings are much, much better in the practice swing. And that's because the hit impulse or the focus on hitting the object takes their attention away from being aware of what their body's doing. And it puts the attention on hit the ball. And so they're oblivious to what their swing actually did. So it gives real feedback. If you're casting it, the club gets stuck behind, you're coming outside in, the ball goes out in certain angles. If you're swinging too fast, like let's say you wanted to hit a shot 40 yards, well, there's a setup on the club that says, look, if you do it this way, your swing should project the ball out about 40 yards. And if you go faster than that, the ball comes out early. If you're slow at that point, the ball comes out higher and to the left.
1: Right. And and so our listeners understand, because you're doing a great job describing something with words that you really need to see. This is a driver with a shortened shaft. So in the driver face actually does have that cradle, as you call it, that a golf ball goes right in the face of that. And when you swing the club, if you're on the right swing plane, then it releases it properly rather than, as you just described there very nicely. I did shoot some video of you describing this at the PGA show. I will post that on our YouTube channel for the Mod Golf podcast. So all of our listeners can see you in action there and i did take lots of pictures so we'll have pictures and also links to swing coach so people can check that out also
0: it's so unique in terms of, no, you've never seen something like this before, but it actually works technically. So sometimes innovations, although you're not familiar with the way they look because they look completely different. I mean, look at the Concorde airplane. It was a totally different airplane look, but it was a great airplane. You have to look at it and say, okay, well, why and how does this work and how can it benefit me as a person, as a player? Is it worth putting the money into it to do that? And I use it myself because it helps me. I've always had a little problem where my hips would turn a little too fast. just like Tiger and the club would get stuck behind my right hip. My right arm gets behind it. And then it had to go out and it would go out and around instead of going through down the target line. So this catches it really fast.
1: We talked about this before we started the show here. I know you really believe in this product because as we talked about, one of our New Year's resolutions was to start saying no to certain things that people ask and even say no to ourselves so we can really focus on things. And I know you would not expend the energy and the time and your reputation if you didn't believe in this. So with that, I want to ask you very quick here, Dean, because we're really about growing the game here at the Mod Golf Podcast through innovation. Are you finding with the swing coach that players, whether they're kids, women, younger people, or anybody that's never even played the game before, are you finding some of them are using that to get some immediate feedback as far as your, your target group, or is it more experienced golfers that are using swing coach?
0: Absolutely. It works for both. The thing for me is it, I knew it would be beneficial for the less advanced player. I knew that from the beginning. I wanted it to work for me at my level where it could teach me at a faster speed. Because if you take a like a little wobble in your car wheel, if you drive slow, you won't notice it. if you drive 70 miles an hour, it's going to show up, right? So in golf, we're always going to want to swing faster and slower based on how far we want to hit the ball. And so I needed the product to work both at a slow speed and also a fast speed. And that's what we use it for. So if let's say you're a really long hitter and your short game is lousy for pitching or chipping because your body and everything's too active for power. When you use it properly, it trains you how to get your body and the club moving more in harmony and less where it lags so much and then you fling the release for all the extra power. So, and if you snatch it back too quick, the ball would come out. So it makes you move away from the ball in harmony as well. So it has both ends of the spectrum, which is why I liked it.
1: Well, it's interesting because now, as you know, Dean, as far as data analytics and everything that we actually have, whether it's through an app and it is the connectivity we actually have and so much data out there. One thing I love about this is it's that elegant simplicity of how it connects to how, as human beings, we actually learn and get feedback, especially the visual feedback. You see it right there. There's no lying there. If you don't get the result with the release of the ball, then obviously you're doing one of two things wrong.
0: This is, a funny, this is a funny quick story. So did you ever watch American Idol? Yes. All right. So on American Idol one night, they had a guy that came on the show, and he, and he got up in front of Simon Cowell and all these people. They said, well, can you sing? He says, yeah. He said, look, I've actually done a study on how to sing. And I've got the vibrations of the vocal cords, and how many vibrations per second you have to have to hit the high note and how many vibrations to the low note. He went through this whole gyration of stuff. And you're sitting there thinking, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> but he re- really believed because he had studied it that he could sing. Obviously, he couldn't. <laughs> so sometimes the over analytical side of things, it doesn't make you play better. It makes you play worse, which is how people actually get the yips because they've over analyzed it. And it's a thing that you do. It's not a thing that you analyze. Right. So if you go to the doctor, the doctor has the education to say, listen, I need you to take two of these every day for about seven days and then just get some rest and you'll be fine. He doesn't tell you everything behind the two pills a day and the rest because you wouldn't really understand it anyway. But if you knew all of that and didn't take the two pills and rest, you wouldn't get better. So it's really about how do you get something? That's why I like the product so much because it's very simple to understand what you did. If you trust that the club is telling you, I'll go back to a simple analogy. Did you ever drive a stick shift car?
1: I drive one now.
0: Okay. So you know in the very beginning when you started to put the foot in to put the clutch in and then you had to shift and you had to take your foot off the gas. You shift and you take your clutch out and you put your foot on the gas. There's a timing there between those three pieces, your left foot, your right foot, and your hand, right? Yes. And in the beginning, that seems so complicated. And the engine either over revs and you don't get, or you pop the clutch too early or you step on the gas and it's like, am I ever going to get this? And then all of a sudden, the brain switches and you can hear the revs, the RPMs go, and you're shifting based on the sound. You're not shifting based on all your detailed analysis of what you're supposed to do. This is the same way the real learning process is in the game. The problem is that most people don't know how to teach you to get there. They teach you by dissecting every move put your hands here get this over here get this up this way and ultimately that doesn't really get people there very fast
1: i love that analogy that that was as simple as swing coach is in your hands there so hey dean just to finish up here just a couple more minutes of your time here I want to hear your thoughts on growing the game You've seen pretty much everything over the last four decades here. So i really like to hear your thoughts as far as growing the game and, and where there's opportunities. So is the lens you see things through as far as, let's say, the next 5, 10, 20 years for the recreational player, for fans of the game and, and for professional golfers. So what are your thoughts on the future of golf? I'll give you a few. So I think that to grow the game, first, I think that the
0: game needs to be, and they say this a lot, but needs to be fun first where it's more camaraderie fun. So for juniors, instead of getting them started in competitive nine-hole events where it's a total score, I think things where they're teamed up with a buddy and they're playing alternate shot or they're playing best ball. And they're literally like a high school team where you're really teamed up with someone else instead of individual competition against the whole field. (laughs) Thank you. The <laughs> cat I think what little kids, especially at the young age, they want to be part of a team because that's how they make their friends. So they join soccer, they join baseball or football because there's other kids and then they have parties and they have places to go and do. They don't have a network of people that they can call all over the place. So I think that helps the game get more of a foothold of, hey, this is a fun sport. We can go together. When our son Kyle first started to play, the problem was he didn't have any friends that played golf. Right. Nobody played. So he played If he joined a soccer team, he immediately had 15 friends and they practice together, and they got to know each other, and they talk. So I think that that's one key component that has to be looked at. I think the other one is you have to allow people to get out on the golf course for six holes in the evening, nine holes in the evening, not just 18 holes, because a lot of times they don't have that much time. But to go out and play five or six holes in a really serene place, work on your game, and not have to pay the $100 green fee just because you're only going out for a few. I think it adds revenue to the golf courses, and I think it allows a person to say, yeah, you know what, instead of doing that, I'm just going to go play a few holes and hit some golf shots. And it cost me $20 instead of a hundred dollars. So I think some of those things can get people back in, especially when you get some busy timeframes and you really can't cost income average of that out to say, well, is it really worth paying that much money to go out and I'm only going to get an hour of time on the golf course? So people end up going, there were driving ranges. I think indoor home simulators, I represented a company that was a great product years ago it was an indoor simulator that had a golf ball attached to a tether. So there were no nets or anything required. You just hit that and it showed up on the computer screen so you didn't have to worry about having Having a lot of big space, teaching the game, having students that are teachers be required to go teach senior citizen home to get them in the game, give them the free clinic, have them monitored so that they're learning how to teach them, not just sit in a class and be educated with intellectual knowledge, because intellectual knowledge doesn't necessarily translate to a skill. I can read up all I want about how to fly the Concorde, but if I sat in the cockpit, I would not ready to fly just because I read it and I understood it. I think that with video, with Skype and with FaceTime, I give lessons to a guy named Kent Strong in Canada. And Kent is in Fort McMurray. And through the wintertime, I give him lessons at night and I see him on Skype. We talk. It's just like I'm right next
1: to him. So I don't have to always travel to be there or them travel to see me. Well, you touch on about four different elements there as far as growing the game. And we saw a lot of those in action on the floor at the PGA show. And I've had some on as previous guests. I don't know if you're aware of Chris Hart, who is the founder and CEO of Next Gen Golf. He's really connected and created a community with college students and that team-based scramble approach to playing. And then it's taken that to the next level once they graduate when they're 21 years old to something called City Tour, which appeals to the 21 to 35-year-old. So where you're going with that Dean I think maybe that's the next move for Chris and their group there is to actually then go to the younger group there even before they get into college sounds like a great opportunity there and I I do know that the First Tee and other groups and other initiatives are certainly looking at that also and one of the other things I saw at the show and I'm going to have them on as a guest to get more people on the golf course and to actually increase the utilization rate on the course when it's empty half the time this one app is really cool kind of like Uber or Lyft in the sense that you pay for as far as you drive it's the same with that you can play one Hole, you can play three holes, and it's all just with the technology they have, you can actually do that. Get on the course, and every hole you play, and then once you're done, it actually charges you right there, just like you would when you leave your Uber. So, some very interesting stuff out there. It sounds like you've already seen the future a few years ago, and the future is is now, and it's exciting times for golf, which, as we both know, even a few years ago, golf was in a tough place, and it seems to be reinventing itself, and it's taking more than one person and one idea to actually do that. And you're certainly one of the ones that's making Making that happen. So, with that, Dean, I really want to thank you today for being on the Mod Golf Podcast. Before we leave here, how can my listeners find out more about Dean Renmouth and all the good things that you do in the golf space? My
0: email is deanofgolf at AOL.com and my web is Dean of Golf. Nice and simple. Yeah, they couldn't spell my last name, it was hard to pronounce. So, I just went to one name,
1: Dean. There we, there we go. Well, on the show notes for the episode, we will have all the links to that and on your bio also on the Mod Golf Podcast website. So Dean Reimov, the Dean of Golf. Thanks for your time today and talking to us on the Mod Golf podcast. As one of the early innovators and entrepreneurs that keeps on reinventing himself, you inspire me, and I know you're going to be inspiring others that listen to this podcast. So thanks so much, Dean. Just imagine years ago, if you had said to somebody, I'm going to have a podcast, they would have said, What is that? (laughs) Absolutely. I was going to say, I tell my kids, well, my daughter, who's going to be graduating high school in a year or so, she's quite worried about what she wants to do. And I say, You know what? Even in high school or even in university and when I finished up an architecture school, what I've done, probably four or five different careers, I've done things that didn't even exist, weren't even thought of at that time. So take a deep breath. Don't worry about that and find opportunities and follow your passion and get that foundation of what you need to set yourself forward for the rest of your life. All right, Dean. Well, once again, thanks so much. And I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Have a great day. You too. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for this week's episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with longtime golf innovator, coach, and entrepreneur, Dean Reinmuth. If you'd like to learn more about the Dean of Golf and his latest innovative teaching tool, Swing Coach, go to our episode page at www.mod.golf for pictures and links to a video with Dean on our YouTube channel. Join me again next week when I have the pleasure of speaking with World Golf Foundation Golf 2020 Diversity Task Force Chairman, Dr. Michael Cooper where he passionately works on their mission to promote and increase inclusion across the sport. If you enjoy the Mod Golf podcast, please go to our website at www.mod.golf or find us on iTunes, where you can subscribe on either platform. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Have a great week, and I look forward to you joining us again soon. Bye for now.